preparation for the study of the Word of God, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure our mindset is where it needs to be before the authority of His Scripture, shall we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege and blessing we have to assemble together and receive instruction. We humble ourselves before your authority, asking, Father, that this time that you have provided for us might be well redeemed. We realize that this is a privilege, that we don't deserve to have such freedom. We don't deserve to have the opportunity to meet in a public building with a sign out front, but here we are and we thank you for it. Father, we ask for distractions to be set aside and concentration upon the truth of your word. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 1 this morning, 57 through 80, continuing our study on the birth of John the Baptist, specifically his father's song that we have been examining. Already to this point, we have uh, dealt with point one, the obedience of Zacharias and Elizabeth in naming their son John. There are some subpoints under there as well. Moving on to point two now. Zacharias becomes the final member of his immediate family to receive the Holy Spirit, and he sings a prophetic song of praise to the Lord. And this is what we're examining in verses 67 through 79. This is slide six. I've intended for two weeks now to jot myself little notes on what uh, slide numbers these are. Under this, we've examined, first of all, the phrase, Blessed be the Lord. And our time last week was spent focused on this, as it says in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And uh, we examined the origins of this in the Davidic Psalms, how David used this at Solomon's ascension to the throne, and uh, examined the particular passages including Psalm 41:13, the song of uh, or the Psalm of Solomon in Psalm 72 verses 18 and 19. So if you are following along in the outline now, this is main point two. Zacharias becomes the final member of his immediate family to receive the Holy Spirit and sing pray and sings a prophetic song of praise to the Lord. Under point two now is point A. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. And we examine that uh, under subpoints one and two. The words of David himself from Psalm forty one thirteen. The uh, words that Solomon adopted in Psalm 72, verses 18 and 19. Ascribing the eulogetos blessedness to God is a mature recognition of his matchless worth. This is an important concept not only for this study, but also for things coming up in our First Corinthians series as we orient ourselves to what he has provided. We cannot make him blessed, but we can recognize his blessedness for what it is and ascribe it to his name. Uh, God is not blessed because we say he is, and I hope we're clear on that. God, of course, in his sovereignty and his glory can pronounce blessings upon us, and when he says it is so, it is so. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And I hope we understand sovereignty at work. Now, we come along, and we're pleased to uh, ascribe blessedness to him. We can say, blessed be, but we don't have the authority of sovereignty behind our statements. He doesn't become blessed simply because we say he is. It does, however, reflect our recognition on a mature basis for his matchless work. And so we can relate such phrases as we find them in 2 Corinthians 1.3, Ephesians 1.3, 1 Peter 1.3. There's no cosmic uh, arrangement to the chapter 1 verse 3 combination there, even though we recognize it's a pattern. It just coincidence, as it were, when uh, the Greek texts were versified in the uh, Middle Ages. Now, we're ready to describe the reasons why for his blessedness under point B. So, sub-point B now, under main point two, we have the uh, conjunction hati, H-O-T-I, the conjunction hati, number 3754 in the Strong's Index. The conjunction hati introduces three actions that Zechariah praises God for doing. This is the explanation for. The explanation for. As we read it in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for. And this now gives the causal reasoning why uh, the God of Israel is indeed blessed. These are the 
evidences. These are the items for which Zacharias is ascribing that blessedness. Four. And so let's just simply handle three verbs here this morning and look at them. But the conjunction hati introduces three actions that Zacharias praises God for doing. The first one of which is that he has visited us. The verb employed to visit, as it appears here in the text, is the verb episkepsita, written out here in the top line, and um, as it appears in the text, it appears as episkepsita, E-P-E-S-K-E-P-S-A-T-O, episkepsita. It is an arithmetical indicative of episkeptomai. If you're looking for episkepsita in your dictionaries, you're not going to find it. You have to look for it in its vocabulary form, in its lexical form, which is the second one listed on your screen there. Episkeptomai. E-P-I-S-K-E-P-T-O-M-I. Episkeptomai. Number 1980 in the Strong's Index. All right. Coincidence again. There's been a lot of focus in the last few days on the year 1980. This is not the year 1980. This is the Strong's Index number 1980, which is episkeptomai. It's interesting. Epi, of course, is a um, pronoun that indicates over or, or upon. Uh, a lot of times with uh, uh, skapos, an, an episkopos, is somebody who oversees, somebody who watches over. Um, and that is the sense of this word here, to visit, to look upon in order to help or to benefit. We have a similar phrase in the English language if I say, well, I will look in on somebody. That is, I'm going to step in, I'm going to overlook, I'm going to see what's going on and observe. If there's any problems, I can take care of it. Uh, but by and large, if there's no problems, then I'll just you know take note of that and recognize that things are proceeding fine and I don't need to intrude. Uh, so we can think of it as to look over, to look upon uh, the verb scapeo, where we get um, a lot of our scope words in the English, like telescope and microscope and every other kind of scope. You know, doctors have a variety of scopes that they place in different places. But all of our scope words, which means we're going to take a look at it. We're going to observe and see what's going on there. Stethoscope, all right, and whatever other scopes there might be. Uh, so we have the verb scapeo to to uh, to look around, but a difference though between scopeo and then this particular root where we have skeptomai, and you might even glean with the s k e p, the idea is being skeptical. Not only am I scoping out the circumstance, but I'm scoping out the circumstance with a fair amount of skeptic. Uh, skeptic attitude, a skeptic approach. In other words, I'm not just looking at it, but I'm looking at it with rather a critical eye. I'm looking at it with perhaps some uh, some caution, looking at it with maybe some um, uh, discernment, wisdom, so to speak. If uh, you find a deal out there that's maybe too good to be true, well, if you're a skeptic or you have a skeptical uh, personality, you might start looking for the fine print. You might start to think, okay, where's the catch? Where's the downside? What, uh, what's the rest of the story? This is just too good to be true. I'm going to look at it with a little bit of skepticism. And so that's the nature here with the idea of visiting. He's visiting, but his eyes are open. He's skeptical as far as what man is truly up to. <laughs> skeptical in terms of Israel and how faithless they are. And yet he's visiting in order to bless them, in order to provide for them, all in grace by giving them a forerunner, by giving them a Christ. And this really communicates a tremendous um, blessing as Zechariah is just filled with the grace of it because Israel certainly doesn't deserve any of it. All right? Applications of episkeptomai if you just simply want to see an assortment of places here, would include Acts 7.23 and 15.36, both in the book of Acts, which are good places to turn just on a sampling basis because uh, if we're going to compare the usage of it with uh, Luke chapter 1, well, Acts gives us a similar, at least you know, the same author with, the, uh, with Luke himself being the author of Luke and Acts. Uh, so Acts 7.13, I'm sorry, Acts 7.23 Moses, it says in verse 22, this is Stephen's uh, walkthrough, by the way. Moses was educated 
Or after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. He was not just showing up there, uh, you know, not just hanging out, drinking a cold one, munching on chips and, and talking about football. He wasn't just there for a visit. In my mind, the word visit is just too weak. The idea of visit is you're just, you know, dropping in and chit-chatting and seeing what's what's going on and leaving. Maybe that's just me and maybe my understanding of visit's a little bit different, but the idea of visit just seems too social. <laughs> seems too lighthearted, so to speak. But actually appearing among them in order to help or to benefit, to scope out what's going on, to see where I might be able to help, that was Moses' idea. And of course in his pride, uh, Moses had all kinds of things where he thought he could serve, he thought he could deliver them, he thought he could murder this Egyptian and all these things. And the Lord made it very clear to Moses that he was about 40 years shy of being able to be used at all. That he uh, he had some training and preparation, but he needed 40 years of humility and shepherding before he would really be prepared to deliver the nation of Israel. It would not come about through human effort and the things that appear there. So when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through them, but they did not understand. And I would go so far as to expand upon Stephen's comments here to say that Moses himself did not understand what the Lord's plan was at this point of time. Likewise, in Acts 15.36, we have Episkeptomai. Uh, Acts 15.36, where uh, after the apostolic conference in Acts 15, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. In other words, Paul and Barnabas intended to return to the churches that they founded and skeptically observe what was going on and make corrections when needed and, and uh, take action where appropriate. The other applications of this include Matthew 25, verses 36 and 43. Matthew 25. In a passage... I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. Not just dropping in, chit-chatting, but actually appearing with an eye to see where you might be of benefit. I was in prison and you came to me. It's repeated again in verse uh, 43. had a lady last week call on the phone and quoted these passages and chewed me out left and right because I wasn't going to give her $35. And I said, well, I don't have $35. And who are you? And <laughs> she says, well, I'm, I'm your sister in Christ and I need help. So, okay. Anyway, that was an interesting phone call and personality rubbed me the wrong way just to begin with and something else. So, visiting the sick. James one twenty seven. James one twenty seven. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit, to episkeptomai, orphans and widows in their distress. That is, those who are truly in need, it is our responsibility to visit them, to get with them and see what that need is, and to provide for them. If we do not provide for our own, we are worse than the infidel. So this is why Zacharias is praising the Lord. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us. He has actually appeared, such as what will be quoted in John chapter 1, that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. God himself made an appearance in the flesh, observing the needs and providing for the needs. The second verb, point two. He has accomplished redemption. 
as we see in verse 68, for he has visited us, that's the first verb, and accomplished redemption. The verb is poieo, aorist active indicative of poieo, taking the object of lutrosis to complete the verb accomplished redemption. As I say, there are three verbs that are the uh, that are related to the conjunction hati, explaining why Zacharias considers the Lord God to indeed be blessed. This is now the second of those verbs. Poieo, basic verb number 4160, to do or to make, doesn't stand alone, but rather takes a, uh, a noun to complete the thought. Poieo, P-O-I-E-O, to do or to make. And the noun lutrosis, L-U-T-R-O-S-I-S, lutrosis. Feminine singular accusative noun, lutrosis, L-U-T-R-O, that's the long O, the omega. Looks like a W, so it's the long O omega, L-U-T-R-O-S-I-S, number 3085. Lutrosis, placing the accent on the first syllable. Lutrosis, L-U-T-R-O-S-I-S, number 3085, ransoming, releasing, redemption, referring to the purchase price in order to redeem a slave. This is what God accomplished. Of course, we were slaves in the slave market of sin. As it is said here, redemption, a purchase price. We too often forget that. We lose sight of that because we're saved by grace. We're the objects of grace. We're the recipients of grace, and it doesn't cost us a thing. <laughs> it's totally free, but it cost him. It cost the father his own son. He paid the price. The price was the blood of his son. And uh, we do not want to lose track in our in our limited, relative, finite viewpoint being free to us. We don't want to lose track with divine viewpoint, the unlimited, absolute perspective that this was a precious price that he did indeed pay. Lutrosis, uh, we have it in Luke 1.68, Luke 2.38, Hebrews 9.12. The noun for redemption. Luke 1.68, as we see here, he's visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. In chapter 2 and verse 38, at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. See, those who were spiritual minded, those who understood that the Messiah was not just a political figure, not just a king, not just an earthly ruler, not just somebody that was going to throw off the bonds of Rome and lift up Israel and give them preeminence over the, over the Gentiles. See, that wasn't the earthly minded approach. But those who were truly looking for the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, they understood the doctrine of redemption. Finally, Hebrews 9.12, if you want another sampling on lutrosis. Hebrews 9.12, verse 11 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. Jesus Christ did not take his blood into the earthly replica that the uh, temple, the earthly temple that Ezra built, that Herod remodeled, that looked all dazzling and glorious in his day. The apostles were pretty proud of it. The apostles, you know, were trying to give him a guided tour and saying, look at this, look at that. And you know how many years this had been rebuilt? Christ wasn't impressed with the earthly replica. And he did not enter into that earthly replica. I thought it was quite interesting in the, uh, the movie The Passion. It just a split second on screen showing the veil rent. And if you missed it, I had to see it four times in order to catch <laughs> that veil that was rent in two. Because if you weren't looking, you were going to miss it. All right. I did see it on my second time, but, you know, on my second, third, and fourth time, I saw it, missed it the first time, and said, you know, they should have given that more coverage. And also to cover the empty room behind there. There was no Ark of the Covenant in, uh, in that temple. Uh, it was an empty room behind that veil. But that's not where Christ went. That's not what his blood accomplished. That was a replica. The heavenly reality is where the true atonement was made. Verse 12, And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained what kind of redemption? Eternal redemption. How do you lose that? <laughs> you can't. 
It's eternal. If it's if you can lose it, it's not eternal. It's temporary. This is why Zacharias was praising the Lord. He was worthy to be praised for these reasons. All right. First of all, he's visited. Secondly, he has accomplished. Thirdly, he has raised up. The verb is agero, to raise, to lift up. What has he lifted up? Well, we'll see that here in a moment. For the third verb in Luke 1 that, is, that corresponds to the explanatory hati is found now in verse 69. He has raised up. Three verbs that are all keyed in to the explanatory conjunction hati. He has visited, he has made or accomplished, and he has raised up. As it says, Ageron Keras Soterias, the aorist active indicative of Agero. All right. Again, I'll just simply underline this for you. As it appears in the text, is the top line. Ageron Keras Soterias, he has raised up a horn of salvation. The verb is the first word there. It's the aorist active indicative of Agero. Number 1453. 1453. 1453. Wasn't that the year that Byzantine fell to the Muslims? I think so. All right. 1453. Agero. E-G-E-I-R-O. To arouse, to cause to rise, to lift up, to take something that was seated or lying down or non-existent and then lift it up. Used here in Luke 1, 69. It's used in Luke 3, 8. Used in Acts 13, 22. Agero, to lift or to cause to rise, to cause to have preeminence. In Luke 3.8, the rebuke coming here to the Pharisees, he says, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. God can take these stones and he can agero, he can raise up children of Abraham. So don't get too proud of yourself just because of what race you happen to be. Talking, of course, to the Jewish Pharisees there. We can make same application ourselves. If a pastor starts to get too full of himself and too puffed up in his head and thinking that he's something else, you know, God can take stones and raise up a better pastor than that guy will ever be. He can take a donkey and preach a Bible class through that man. He's used the donkeys to teach Bible class before. He can do it again. All right. Likewise, in Acts 13.22, we have the application of a gero there. After he had removed him and raised up David, that is with reference to removing Saul, and raised up David to be their king. See, God in his sovereignty is controlling everything. Who our next president is going to be in November? Are we getting all worked up over elections coming up? Are we getting all wrapped up with with, uh, the human beings involved? kind of political these days, I guess, with the the passing of President Reagan and a lot of the memories there and all the news coverage. And I've only watched probably 90 hours of coverage maybe in the last three days. So, you know, it's it's, uh, interesting who God lifts up, who he casts down. Well, Zacharias here in Luke 1 is praising God. He is blessed. The Lord God of Israel is blessed. And he itemizes three things that he has done. He has visited his people. He has um, uh, accomplished redemption. And he has raised up a horn. He has raised up a horn. The term keras, K-E-R-A-S, is the noun for horn, number 2768. K-E-R-A-S. And then salvation is soteria. S-O-T-E-R-I-A. That's why our doctrine of salvation is called the doctrine of soteriology. Soteriology. It's a foundational doctrine for seminary. It's a foundational doctrine for all believers. We need to understand our soteriology if we're going to be an effective witness. If you're going to lead someone to the gospel of Jesus Christ, what are you going to tell them? How are you going to tell your friend, your loved one, your neighbor how to get saved? Well, you better have a pretty clear soteriology. 
Now relax, it doesn't have to be all scholastic. <laughs> you don't have to be a professor or have all kinds of degrees and break down the doctrine of soteriology and all these things. You just have to be a sinner saved by grace telling another sinner how you found it. And that's the simplicity of it. But there are elements of soteriology we have to be solid on. We have to be solid on grace rather than works. You have to preach a grace salvation or you're not preaching a, an accurate soteriology. All right, number 4991, S-O-T-E-R-I-A. He has raised up a horn of salvation. Now, this whole thing is rather interesting and grounded in Psalm 132, so let's turn back there. But I mentioned this last week, and I don't know if I stressed it well enough. The manger hasn't happened yet, all right? The, the, the herald has arrived. And yet, uh, Zacharias is speaking with what we would think of as prophetic anticipation, <laughs> anticipating that these things are already accomplished activities. He has accomplished redemption. Well, strictly speaking, the God-man has not yet hung upon the cross for the three hours of darkness and, and the veil is, has not yet in time been rent in two because the Christ is still in the womb. All right? The baptizer's been born. The baptizer's been born. And that's enough to convince Zacharias that the promises of God are faithful and true. He doubted the gave, he doubted the angel once and was struck dumb for nine months because of that. He's not doubting anything else at this point. Speaking of everything as being past completed action, what the Lord has done. And it's uh, tremendous statements of confidence on Zechariah's part. He has a tiny little baby in his home. However old he is, however old his wife is, you know, they should be grandparents or great-grandparents or whatever. And here now they're raising babies, a baby, that is. And uh, looking at this little boy, he knows this is the herald and the Christ is on the way and these things are going to be accomplished. And he will probably die. He's going to be like those prophets who died without having seen the promises. I, I don't expect that Zechariah and Elizabeth are going to live another 30 years to see the Christ born and raised and, and enter into public ministry and then three and a half years of public ministry and probably 35 years by the time all is said and done. We're probably still 35 years pre-Calvary at this point of time. And yet Zechariah is viewing it as accomplished. All right? Join me now at Psalm 132. We'll take a look at it. See Psalm 132.17 for the faithful promise that Zacharias must have had in mind at this time. So many of the Psalms, particularly the Davidic Psalms, but any of the Psalms here that, that uh, were looking forward to the coming of the Christ. Psalm 132, remember, O Lord, on David's behalf. So this is post-David, looking back to David and promises God made to David. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Surely I will not enter my house nor lie on my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. And remember, he wanted to build the temple and God would not allow him, but he made provision for it so Solomon could build it in his day. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, we found it in the field of Jar. Let us go into his dwelling place, let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your godly ones sing for joy. For the sake of David, your servant, do not turn away the face of your anointed. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body I will set upon your throne. Remember now, it has been nearly a thousand years since David at this point of time. They're still looking forward. They're still looking forward, waiting for that Christ to be revealed. They're still clinging to the promises and saying, the Lord remembers, the Lord remembers. And Zechariah himself has his name, which means the Lord remembers. Verse 12, if your sons, plural... 
will keep my covenant and my testimony which I will teach them. Their sons, plural, shall also sit upon your throne forever. Keep in mind, of course, that David had a number of earthly sons. There's a chain of them from Solomon to Rehoboam and on down through um, Zedekiah there in the history of the Old Testament history of the Davidic throne in Judah. And each one that arose, as recorded in First uh, and Second Kings, uh, was compared back to David. They either obeyed the Lord fully as David their father had done, or they did not obey the Lord God fully as David their father had done. But every single king of Judah that followed David, that descended from David, was compared back to the Davidic standard. And the ones who obeyed were blessed. The ones who disobeyed were disciplined, very conditional. But do not confuse the son, singular, with the sons, plural. Verse 13 now. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. How long is that? Alright, not a trick question. (laughs) Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her needy with bread. Her priests also I will clothe with salvation. And her godly ones will sing aloud for joy. There I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. Now it's singular. It's not just sons. It's not all the the line of David that would arise after him. That would uh, Some would be faithful, some would not. We're back now to a very specific promise. The horn. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. Singular. His enemies I will clothe with shame. But upon himself his crown shall shine. Alright. What a wonderful promise. Wonderful promise. And here's Zacharias praising the Lord for three things. That uh, he has visited, he has accomplished redemption, and he has lifted up a horn of salvation. Back to Luke 1 now. Point C. Zacharias then relates these miracle babies to prophetic promises. Luke chapter 1. Verses 70 through 75. Zacharias then relates these miracle babies to prophetic promises. Remember, both John the Baptizer and Jesus Christ are miracle babies. One was born to the old woman, the old barren woman, Elizabeth. The other was born to the virgin. And Zacharias relates these miracle babies to prophetic promises. He's not just pronouncing the Lord God blessed. He's not just describing contemporary events as the three atoms that are listed in verses 68 and 69. But he says in verse 70, as, as, correlating present activity with past revealed promises, prophetic promises. This is why it's so... (laughs) unique Old Testament history on into New Testament history when we're dealing with the nation of Israel we're dealing with um, families and clans now you and I I mean we can we can uh, chart out our family trees we can work on our genealogies and New Testament describes that as a danger (laughs) because it's endless genealogies and you get so sidetracked in all these non-essential issues that don't, don't really matter anyway But to the Old Testament standpoint, the genealogies had a very real purpose because specific land was granted to specific tribes. Covenants and promises were made to the nation of Israel, specifically the ruling covenants that were made with the family of David. The lineage is very vital in terms of Israel and God's plan and program for Israel. In the church, God doesn't give a hoot. Genealogy makes no difference whatsoever. Who your parents were, your grandparents, your race, any of that. And uh, Gentile dogs like myself can can become partakers of the covenant. What a delight. All right. But here are these people now and they're having and, and their lineage is very important. And they're tracing their lineage back for biblical reasons. And it's not just family history. All right. There's, there's a bit of folklore in my family, and I don't know how accurate it is, and nobody's even alive anymore to prove it, but my dad 
was raised to be instructed in this, that his his grandmother, would have been my great-grandmother, was in Iowa, and for a time they lived in Iowa, and for a time they lived in Illinois, and true or not, who can prove it now, but the legend, the, the family folklore, is that my great-grandmother took Ronald Reagan's mother to the store to purchase his first pair of shoes. Wow. <laughs> I haven't seen that yet on all the Fox News coverage. Don't expect to. And whether it's true or not, who knows now at this point, you know, something that goes back to the 19-teens or whatever, when he was two or three years old, maybe 1913, 1914. All right. Anyway, that's family folklore. Oh, boy. Okay. But now, Zacharias and Elizabeth, or... Joseph and Mary, or these characters that we're looking at in the gospel record, the Jewish believers that traced their family back. It wasn't just family uh, records, but it was biblical records. <laughs> you know, tracing when, when, when Joseph traces his lineage back to David and Solomon, that's not just family history, that's First and Second Samuel. That's the Bible record. In any event, I find that remarkable. So point A. When we, when we deal with Luke 171, we relate it back to Psalm 106.10. See, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. And now Zechariah starts to cycle biblical teaching that he understands. And his whole Bible at this point is what we call the Old Testament. All right? The law the writings, and the prophets. The threefold division of the Old Testament. And that's his Bible. There's no New Testament at this point. He's got a Bible. He's got the Old Testament as we understand it. The law, the, the writings, and the prophets. Same content you and I have from Genesis to Malachi. Just books are in a little different order. It's the same content though. And so in Luke 171, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Drawing upon Psalm 106 and verse 10. Psalm 106 and verse 10. It's interesting. The, um, the whole history of Israel is the history of those who have hated them right from their very birth right from the very uh, genesis of their status as a nation. Remember, they went down to Egypt as a family. They came out of Egypt as a nation. Uh, verse 7, Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindnesses, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. <laughs> you know, they were idol worshippers in Egypt. And they rebelled at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them, not because they deserved it, but because he promised to do so for the sake of his name. And he can't be a liar. He's got to fulfill his promises no matter how wicked they get. Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name that he might make his power known. Thus, he rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up and he led them through the deeps as through the wilderness so he saved them from the hand of the one who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. Remember, our, that Red Sea event, the redemption of Israel out of the bondage in Egypt is the picture of our own redemption out of the bondage of sin. God didn't do it because we deserved it. He did it in faithfulness to his own name. And just like the parting of the sea was something no human being could have accomplished, our salvation was something no human being could accomplish. And just as the sea came crashing down behind them, there was no going back to Egypt. There's no going back to our bondage and sin. We cannot lose our salvation. The Exodus portrays so much in terms of our redemption. Saved from the hand of the one who hated them and redeemed from the hand of the enemy. Now when we think about angelic conflict, we think about being born in darkness, we think about being subject to the uh, principalities and powers, the, the lost estate of the unbeliever. It is not a friendly place even under that domain. The, the ruler of this age doesn't rule in love, doesn't love his subjects. He hates his subjects. 
In fact, the realm of humanity to the realm of the fallen angels, you ever stop and consider that? We're despised. Like cockroaches. I mean, how do you relate to your typical cockroach, for example? Slimy, nasty, disgusting. Ugh, you know? I grew up in Seattle and we didn't have cockroaches. I don't, there might have been, I don't know, one or two in the whole state, but I never saw them until I got in the army and goodness gracious. <laughs> and then I get down here and these things are just huge. Well, the angelic realm, the fallen angelic realm now, that holds humanity as so inferior. And that's why it's such an expression of grace and resolution to the angelic conflict, because the inferior creatures can accept the grace freely offered and demonstrate and manifest grace to the superior creature. Remember, Christ was made for a little while lower than the angels, and now, of course, highly exalted above all the angels, and, and uh, there we are now in Christ. So, saving them from the hand of the one who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. Remember, the enemy relates to us on the basis of hatred. The waters covered their adversaries, their Satans. Not one of them was left. So, when uh, Zacharias is praising the Lord here, recognizing that God is at work, recognizing that Old Testament promises are being fulfilled, Secondly, Luke one seventy two, we relate it over to Micah seven twenty, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. All right, the first part of that verse, Luke one seventy two a, is a reference back to Micah chapter seven and verse twenty. Micah chapter seven and verse twenty. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Micah, the little-known prophet that references the birthplace of Christ being in Bethlehem, in chapter 7. In fact, the very last verse of the, uh, of the book, chapter 7 and verse 20. Micah 7, notice what it says in verse 14. Shepherd your people with your scepter, the flock of your possession, which dwells by itself in the woodland, in the midst of a beautiful field. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. There's a day coming when the coming Christ is going to be their shepherd, when he will bless the nation of Israel abundantly. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show you miracles. Nations will see and be ashamed of all their might. They will put their hand on their mouth. Their ears will be deaf. They will lick the dust like a serpent, like reptiles of the earth. They will come trembling out of their fortresses. To the Lord our God, they will come in dread, and they will be afraid before you. The Gentile nations that actually survive Armageddon that will come and bend the knee and will serve the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the millennial kingdom uh, are going to be terrified at this first approach. <laughs> if you can just imagine, these are the ones that survive, the ones that are not destroyed uh, at Armageddon. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You were wondering where that verse was, weren't you? There it is. You will, give you will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. The covenant that he made with Abraham confirmed it to Isaac, reconfirmed it to Jacob. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has got to be faithful to those promises. And he will be faithful to those promises. Do not believe for a moment that he has scrapped his whole plan for Israel and that he's starting over with the church. Very dangerous thing to think. The second part of verse 72, Luke 1, 72b and verse 73. To remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, the specific, specific reference and citation to the covenant and the terms of the covenant, which remember from last week, Land, seed, blessing. 
Luke 1, 72b and verse 73 related back to Psalm 105, verses 8 through 10. Psalm 105, verses 8 through 10. He has remembered his covenant forever. Let me just read verses 1 through 7 to lead up into this. O give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, among the Gentiles. In other words, this is a psalm that Israel can sing in the millennium as a form of Bible class to the Gentile nations. Sing to him. Sing praises to him, speak of all his wonders, glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord in his strength, seek his face continually. Remember his wonders which he has done, his marvels and the judgments uttered by his mouth. O seed of Abraham his servant, O son of Jacob his chosen ones. This is the election of Israel, different from the election of the church. And their form and function, their purpose as a witness to the Gentile nations. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He has remembered his covenant forever. See, the ministry of Israel as God's nation to all the Gentile nations, they have never, historically, ever enjoyed that as they will in the millennium. They have never had that outreach ministry to the Gentile nations in, in, in the Old Testament or any time of their history, as they will have it in the millennium. He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. To a thousand generations. Won't go into it this morning, but just keep that phrase in mind, because that is not forever. That is a finite period of time. That is, it's a very long period of time. <laughs> Nevertheless, it has a Limit. It is precisely a thousand generations. This is not the only place we have it either. Uh, the commandment to a thousand generations. See, we get we get lost because we look at Abrahamic covenant, Davidic covenant, New Covenant. Everything's eternal. Our salvation, we have eternal life, and so we start to think eternally. We we get out of our finite way of thinking. We start thinking eternally, and then we. Go into studies like the millennium, and once again, we're finite again. What's this thousand years all about? It's a finite figure. It's a thousand years, which ultimately is a drop in the bucket. To the Lord, a day is as a thousand years. A thousand years as a day. So when you and I are in our resurrection bodies, that millennium is simply an introductory act. It is day one. It is a finite duration. There is something beyond the millennium. And then, of course, there is eternity future. But here we have a finite period of time that is referenced, and it is called a thousand generations. The covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac that he confirmed to Jacob for a statute to Israel. That's Jacob renamed to Israel as an everlasting covenant, eternal. Saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. And it goes on through the rest of this through the rest of this uh, particular psalm. Alright, the fourth area, Luke 174, relates back to Zephaniah 315. Luke 174 relates back to Zephaniah 315. To grant that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Might serve him without fear. Every service that Israel offered in the Old Testament ebbed and flowed. It came, it went. <laughs> sometimes they served him, sometimes they served Baal. You know, did they have a good king? Did they have a wicked king? Did they neglect the temple while they worshipped in the high places? Uh, did they have fear because the Assyrians were surrounding them? Did they have fear because the Babylonians were surrounding them? Were they then destroyed by the Babylonians and carried off into exile? Alright? As Zechariah is singing this song, Anticipating such service, serving without fear. In, in time, Zacharias was serving only by the sufferance of Rome. <laughs> serving in a Jewish temple because Rome permitted it. Because uh, Rome's agent, Herod, the Edomite, 
remodeled and rebuilt and expanded the temple and allowed the Jews to, to, uh, to function there. But a day is coming when they would serve without fear. Zephaniah 3.15. Zephaniah. Right before Haggai. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Habakkuk. Zephaniah. Right before Haggai. Zephaniah 3.15. Verse 14 says, Shout for joy. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord, your God, is in your midst. A victorious warrior. So he's not going to come as the humble babe in the manger. He's coming to conquer. A victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feasts. And it goes on here to conclude at the end of the chapter. Part of what makes the tribulation so wicked and evil because Israel has these promises. Israel has the promises that the Lord himself, Jehovah in this verse, Yahweh in verse 15, the king of Israel is going to come as a conqueror. He's going to overthrow the enemies. He's going to set Israel secure in the land. And in the tribulation, faithless Israel is going to buy into the plan and program of Antichrist and form an alliance with him and agree to trust in his protection Sad indeed when we stop and consider what apostate Israel is going to do. Finally, verse 75, Luke 175, we relate it back to Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 27. Luke 175, related back to Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 27. Verse 75 says, In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Was there ever a time in the Old Testament that Israel truly served in holiness and righteousness? Maybe for a day here and there, but for all their days? Forevermore? Ever again? So it will be in the Millennial Kingdom. Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 27. We dealt with this in our Book of Ezekiel series. Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27. Verse 22 says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. <laughs> Don't think for a minute that you deserve this now. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, you faithless jerks that followed after Antichrist. But for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am Jehovah, I am Yahweh, the Lord, declares the Lord God. When I prove myself holy among you in their sight, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. See, at Mount Sinai, he gave them a huge law that nobody could keep. And he did not provide for them the spiritual empowerment to keep the huge law that nobody could keep. <laughs> he gives them a standard that no human can live up to and gives them no divine ability to do so. But here he brings them into the land removes that heart of stone, creates in them a clean heart, a new heart, and provides them with spiritual empowerment. Again, verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. God himself doing the work, causing them to walk. 
And you will be, statement of fact, in future time. You will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. You will be my people, and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call for the grain and multiply it, and I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then... You will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Anticipating that coming day. What a blessing. What a blessing. Well, point D, I'm out of time, but I want to wrap this up. Zechariah celebrates the purpose and ministry of the forerunner and the Christ. Verse 76 points to the forerunner. Verses 77 through 79 focus on the Christ. Zechariah celebrates the purpose and ministry of the forerunner and the Christ. So I'm going to have to stop looking at verses here. I'll just list the points for you and you can look them up on your own. Luke 176 for the forerunner and then the Christ in verses 77 through 79. Finally, after this song has already progressed through all of this, he finally turns to his little infant and says, and you child, and has a verse that, that speaks to that spirit-filled infant, that spirit-filled brephos, And then he references the ministry of the Christ in verses 77 through 79. So points 1 and 2, John the Baptist is the forerunner, Jesus is the Christ. That's a lot of verses to look up, so I thought we would wrap this up today and move on to gain new ground next Wednesday, but it looks like we may come back to these things on Wednesday. The forerunner from Isaiah 40. Malachi 3, Malachi 4, the Christ from Jeremiah 31, Malachi 4, Isaiah 9, Psalm 25. You want to look those up, and you want to look those up in that order. And actually some explanation needs to be made along some of those. So I guess I won't just leave this as as homework. I'll come back to this on Wednesday. And then we'll proceed to the next item in, uh, in our schedule in our harmony of the Gospels that we're following. I do anticipate, by the way, (laughs) we're not going to take six weeks to do each of these items or we'd be here 3,000 years to try to teach the life of Christ. Things are going to accelerate, but what we're doing is we're laying the groundwork, we're laying the foundations, we're we're hopefully doing things, extended studies in some of these areas that are really going to bear fruit and save us time down the road. So by taking the time now to make sure our relation between Old Testament and New Testament is established by taking the time now to solidify that. Hopefully we'll save time down the road as we actually get into the the baptism event, the public ministry, the messages, and the things that uh, that follow then. I expect that we will speed up uh, quite a bit when we uh, actually get to the the narrative of the miracles and the messages and the things that happen there. All right? Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. Father, uh, we're just out of time now at this time. We Got started just a little bit late, Father, but we we do thank you for that. We thank you for the privilege we have to assemble. Thank you for the the blessing we have to receive instruction. This is a grace blessing upon your part, Father, that um, you called for us to not be born in a in a nation or a time when when public assembly is prohibited, when uh, Bibles are confiscated, when church groups are outlawed. But Father, we have all these freedoms, and we thank you for them. Thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.